The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. ...to be of service in your name, carrying your kingdom to the ends of the earth. Lord, that is an impossible thing for us. Would you give grace to see that that comes about in each of us, individually and corporately? Would you visit your church here in this place and your church gathered throughout this valley, country, around the world? Would you visit your church to pour grace on us, to consume us with a single ambition and to send us out and use us to spread that single ambition to others as well? Towards that end, Lord, use this book, use this sermon this morning. Inhabit this place. Spirit, be at work in our hearts to open them to hear. Be at work in me. Lord, help me to focus, to speak in line with you. Lord, lift up Christ here. Bless your people with his presence. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We, the body of Christ, his people, his bride, that group of individuals built on the ancient foundation of the apostles and prophets, us corporately and you individually, if you are a Christian, if you've come to faith in Christ and been saved by grace alone, us, you, we are a people under orders. Assigned a task, a mission. We have been commissioned to do something in particular. It's been repeated. It's been made very clear. It's really hard to miss it. Somehow or another, we tend to miss it. Or misunderstand part of it. Or worse, flat disobey it. It is not God's will for his people. It is not God's will for his church or for us individually. From the moment that he has saved you, he is at work in you. His intention in you is to change you so as to conform you to the image of Christ. That means to make you to value what he values, to love what he loves, to think like he thinks, to be about what he is about, to follow his orders. Towards that end, towards reminding us of the orders we are under and stirring us to be conformed to them, we turn now to the book of Acts. Last week I explained how we're beginning to preach through the book of Acts, which is a book best entitled The Acts of God Through the Apostles, Through His People. We begin to preach this book. It's a natural follow-on to any gospel because... Historically, chronologically, it picks right up where the Gospels leave off and continues on the next several decades. It takes this small little group of people, smaller than our church here, and shows how God gave them orders, sent them out, and then mightily used them to make Christ an issue throughout most of the Mediterranean world. We read about that in the book of Acts. talked about that last week in at the very end of Luke, as we use it as a launching point into Acts, we saw there that God has an eternal plan, a plan of redemption to claim back his people to himself. And that plan is founded on a ground. 
It's grounded on the gospel of God. Come down from God, Christ crucified, Christ raised, Christ reigning, offering forgiveness of sins to all who repent and turn to him. That is the gospel, it is the ground. And the scope, the breadth to which that gospel is to reach is the nations. All peoples, all around the globe. To carry that gospel out to everyone is the job of spirit-filled believers. His people who have been called in and now are sent out. Carrying the gospel to people. And when that happens, when it, when it comes home to a person, something marvelous happens. They experience the blessing of God and become blessers of God. So we saw last week, end of Luke, that is what Luke is, that is what Acts is about in the macro sense. About God's plan and his enrollment, his commissioning of his people in it, his sending out of them and his working through them to bring something marvelous to the nations and to bring great, great glory to himself. And my hope and my prayer, as I said, is that God would use this book over the next year or so to remind us of the orders we are under and to conform us to them. Let's begin the book proper now by reading the, our passage for today, Acts chapter 1. Verse 1 through verse 11. Acts 1 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. As we now move back through the passage, before we observe some, some general themes, there are a couple of points that need to be looked at and understood, both for this passage today and even for the whole book of Acts. Luke begins with his introductory comment about this guy Theophilus. We talked about him last week. Luke has written both Luke and Acts, the same guy wrote both of them, and they're really like a two-part series, and they're both written to this man, Theophilus. And how he describes his first book, Gospel of Luke, tells us something about how Luke, the author, views his second book, the book of Acts. He says, in another book, Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach before the ascension. Implication? 
Now I'm going to deal with all that Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. You get that? Before the ascension, that was Luke. That's what he began to do. Now here's the rest of the story. What he continues to do from heaven through his people. He is still at work here. Now our passage today is the last passage that is before the ascension in the what he began to do part. But from here on out, next week and following, we're going to see what he is continuing to do. So as we read Acts and we see Peter heal somebody, for instance, we should think it's Jesus healing him through Peter. When we see Stephen preach to the, the Jewish leaders, we should think that's Jesus teaching them something about their scriptures. It's Jesus at work. Jesus teaching. It's a critical concept because we also live in this time post-ascension. And that means something for you. For example, you're in your backyard and you're talking to your neighbor and you're explaining to him or her what Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says. And you're explaining that we, the Bible actually says that we are saved not by works that we do. Not by some combination of works that we do with grace, but by grace alone. Through faith, that is a gift from God. You're explaining that to your neighbor, and it is Jesus explaining to your neighbor. Jesus is coming out of your mouth, using his word to teach. Now, that doesn't guarantee that that person's going to respond. Plenty of people reject the teaching of Jesus. Read the Gospels. It happens all the time. But the encouraging thing in there for you is that the Gospels also say, and I'm thinking of John 10.10 especially, that Jesus has sheep out there. And he says, my sheep hear my voice. They know me, and they come and they follow me. So you're thinking, I'm speaking, but it's the voice of Jesus that's actually speaking, and he will call in his sheep. It will happen. He's teaching, not me. That should be an encouragement to you. You go, you speak, you teach with Jesus. That, that does, by no means does that give us authorization to say anything we want and say that it's Jesus, or to do anything we want and say it's coming from Jesus. It's his word, it's line up with the scriptures, but it's Christ continuing to teach and to act. Next week on. Back in this passage, though, in verses 2 and 3, he's repeatedly appearing to the apostles and doing several things. He's, he's teaching them, giving them instruction. He's proving to them that he has actually been raised. We've seen this a number of times. He's explaining about the kingdom, what the reign of God looks like, some things about that. He's urging upon them the importance of being filled with the Spirit. In a short while, he says, essentially, Pentecost is going to happen. I've been talking about this. The Spirit is going to descend in a new and powerful way and baptize the believers. Wait for that. Don't go. Wait for that. A lot is misunderstood in Acts in relation to the Spirit. Something that's misunderstood is what Acts is doing. It's a transition book. And the Spirit being poured out in the book of Acts is illustrating this transition step by step. All believers are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Paul makes that really clear. But in the book of Acts, it happens in stages as God is showing, I'm at work here, like I said it would be, and here, like I said it would be. And here, like I said it would be. The proof of that is the Spirit. Testified to by Peter. But the first baptism of the Spirit is going to come shortly, Pentecost. They're told to wait for it. 
probably the combination of the talk about the Spirit being poured out and the kingdom led the apostles to some natural conclusions for them because they'd read the Old Testament and they'd seen that in the Old Testament the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the coming of the King and the kingdom were tied together. And that must mean, their conclusion, that must mean, here's the Messiah, the Spirit's coming, it must be time for us to get the kingdom back. This is going to be great. Israel is now going to be at the center of the world again. Is now the time, Lord, when we receive back the kingdom? That's their question. Seems natural enough. But as one commentator notes, with a touch of hyperbole here, that there are as many errors as there are words in that question. Their thinking is totally off. Is now the time? They don't see thousands of years before the kingdom is actually physically consummated on the earth. Is now the time when the kingdom is restored? They're thinking Old Testament kingdom, which really, in the global scale, was a very small place. But it's going to be restored, they think. We're going to get that one back. We're going to get that one back, restored to us, Jewish is, that, is now the time it's going to happen? Jesus skips over all those errors and essentially says, guys, don't get caught up too much in speculating about end times, what the times will be like and what the seasons will be like. God's fixed all that. Don't get too caught up in that. It's a helpful hint to us. Don't get too caught up in that. Rather, notice there's a contrast there at the beginning of verse 8, but you won't get the kingdom but you will get the Spirit. Power. Power to be used as my witness. In just a minute, we're going to talk about some of the specifics of verse 8 that's going to form the the bulk of what we're talking about this morning. But I need to make another general observation about this verse in relation to the whole book, and I've already hinted at it a little bit with the the Spirit baptism. Verse 8 functions as an outline for the book of Acts. Think of it like this. Roman numeral 1 God at work in Jerusalem, chapters 1 to 7. Roman numeral 2, God at work in Judea and Samaria, chapter 8 through about chapter 11. Roman numeral 3, God at work in the ends of the earth. Some overlap, it's about 10 where Cornelius comes in, 10 through the end. Luke has built his, his work here, this book, around that outline. And he unfolds it as we go on each time showing through Peter and the Spirit how God is spreading his kingdom. Talk about that more later. But after that, key verse in verse 8 comes the ascension, when Christ goes back into heaven, indicating that he will return in the same way, riding on the clouds. That's the passage for today, the beginning of Acts. It's the last passage that recounts what Jesus was doing and teaching before he was taken back up to heaven. If you want to try and summarize this, here's how I'd put this in in a summary statement. The call, the the, the challenge to us, spoken to the church and the individuals, join with Jesus as he extends his kingdom through his people. That's the orders. Those are the orders that we are under. Join with Jesus as he extends his kingdom through his people. He has a great mission, sometimes called the Great Commission, in reference to our role in it. We are commissioned, sometimes called the eternal plan of redemption. He is about something, something marvelous, to bring back his own, 
to restore righteousness across all of the globe, make himself known. And he does that through his people. So he commissions us, puts us on task, says go out, and he equips us to be useful in that process. So we're going to look at today. I'm going to approach that summary statement through three observations about how Jesus intends to spread his kingdom through his people, how he intends to utilize us. So three observations from this passage. Start with the first one, beginning in verse 8. This is one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible. So you probably know this one, probably heard it, but we can't skip over it even though it's kind of obvious. We need to state the obvious because we forget it. It's the first observation. Jesus has given a great commission to his people. He has. A commission is like an assignment. A special kind of precious thing given to people, given to someone in particular, like you commission an officer to go lead people, or you commission an ambassador to go speak to a country. It's a special job And what Jesus has done with his people, with his church, is he's given us an amazing, grand assignment. We are to be his spokespeople, his heralds, extending word of his nature, of his coronation as king, of his reigning, and of his coming back. We are ordered to carry that out. Second half of verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Spoken to 11 apostles who are the head of the church, but it is the church's job as a whole, and you have a part in it. We all have different parts, but we all have parts. This is our job, to be witnesses. Remember that word, a witness? It's not just someone who sees something, but someone who tells of it also. We are to be testifiers to him everywhere. You will be my witnesses. Not will you be? You will be. It's a statement of fact about the the desired, about the intended, expected norm. Kind of like when when a teacher says, "There there will be no chewing of gum in this classroom. That doesn't mean that nobody's going to chew gum. It just means that the teacher's authority is going to be employed to end gum chewing. People might chew, and the teacher's going to try to stop that. There will be no chewing. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, and I'm going to bend my authority and my power to make that so. It's a statement about what the norm should be. Now, how he works in us, when he works and why, I don't know. Something mysterious in there about how he moves in his church to stir us up to witness in different ways and different places. But the expected norm is that we would be his witnesses. Testifiers. He says to us, this is your commission. The task I'm calling you to, to be heralds, proclaimers, preachers, sharers, whatever word you like there. Everywhere. Around the globe. To all peoples and all nations. That's the scope. Couldn't be any more clear. Could it be? Couldn't be any more clear, I don't think. What we're supposed to do, where we're supposed to do it. The expected norm. That's his command. And it is a privilege. 
clear it's a command, but think how much of a privilege this is. You get to testify, to talk about the greatest one ever anywhere. You get to bear word of him. And you get to be involved in the birth process. Spiritual birth. I imagine a number of us here, if you're parents or grandparents or maybe older siblings, you've been involved in the birth process of some baby that you care about. And you see this one. And what strikes you? Wow. That's amazing. You look at this little one that's cute. You're struck. That's just physical birth. That's just a physical being. Spiritually speaking, it's far more remarkable than that. You get to be involved in a person's eternity changing. In them coming to life spiritually. Of telling them a message or parts of a message that will change everything for them forever. It's a remarkable thing. If you've ever been involved in leading anybody to Christ, you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever been involved in a significant conversation with somebody, you know what I'm talking about. You walk away from it and think, that was amazing. I was in touch with something real there. We were talking about critical things. Not the weather, not sports, not hunting. I mean important stuff about eternity, God, truth, salvation, sin, judgment. We were talking about those things and the light was going on in this person. Wow! Our class that was mentioned earlier, has a, Lee Strobel is one of the teachers of this class, and he, he talks about the first time that he shared his faith, he walked out of that saying, I need more of that kind of adventure in my life. If you've been there, you know that is totally true. It is his command to you, and it is a privilege. It is thrilling, exciting, precious. How could we have let this go? How did we drop this ball that we're so clearly commanded to do and is so much fun? I mean, real fun. How did we let that go? Somehow we did. We do. Often, think through your life, it happens. How? We have hearts that leak, that forget and ignore, get caught up in ourselves. We're just like the disciples. We're just like them. You know, they're, they're told this statement here, but they were told the statement in last week's passage in, in Luke. Weren't they? It's necessary that the gospel be preached to all the nations. And they still ask the question in verse 6. Is now the time that we get our, our dinky little kingdom back? And maybe I get to be in charge of it a little bit too? Is now that time? Totally missing. That he's offering them an opportunity to be involved in building a colossal kingdom. Centered on a majestic king. Calling in people from all tongues and tribes and nations. A kingdom that will span the globe and last forever. They don't see that. They had failed to internalize Luke 24 or Isaiah 49 or Psalm 67. And we have failed to internalize Acts 1.8. Dropped it somehow. This has to change in us. In you personally, in us corporately. 
And it doesn't change by making more programs, forming some more committees. Now, organization is an important thing, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that this has to change, therefore we need to found this committee. I'm saying this has to change in your heart. A new perspective must be born inside of you that sees this, is gripped by it. A new mindset must form in you and in me. My heart leaks just like yours does. Everybody's does. But this new perspective must happen in us that enables us to see our individual little lives in a larger context of what God is doing in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. Still today, Christ continues to work and teach. Our lives are in that context, and we must see it. A phrase that's sometimes used to describe that new mindset is a Great Commission Christian. It's not saying that there are like levels of Christianity. It's just trying to to focus on something. A Great Commission Christian is a Christian who lives in light of this Great Commission, is grabbed by it, sees all of his or her life in that context, lives aware that he or she is under orders, has been commissioned, and his heart beats for that. Doesn't participate grudgingly, but says, my privilege, as well as my orders. A Great Commission Christian is, is affected in, in how he lives, how she spends, how he talks to his neighbors, how she conducts her kids' play dates, how he spends free time, where they live, what kind of job they work. All the areas of life are affected by the Great Commission. It's the, it's the thing that shapes how you're looking at it. A couple of examples. A Great Commission Christian thinks... Right at the top of my list, right at the top of my to-do list, is to go down there and meet that new couple that just moved in on my street. Because who knows? Maybe I'm the one that God's going to send to them with the gospel. Now, truth in advertising, a couple months ago, three guys moved into the house, two houses down the cross street from us. I have not met them. Okay? I'm talking to me too. But a great commission Christian thinks, there's some people... I have no idea who they are, where they're coming from, or whatever, but maybe God wants to send me to them. The first step is surely going to be me walking across the street. (laughs) Then we'll see what happens after that. A great commissioned Christian also thinks, I need to buy a new car. This one's failing. It's, It's done. And it seems to me as I've looked at things that it'd be wise to buy this car. And for some reason or other, I should buy this car new rather than used. But you know what? This extra option right here would cost me $800. Nice option, $800. Which I also know is half of the annual salary of a native Indian missionary, country of India. Half. So I think I'll do without the heated seats and pay for six months of evangelism in Hindu villages. Great commission, Christian thinking. Great Commission Christian also prays earnestly, Lord, give me opportunity to love and serve this particular person right here in my office or in my neighborhood. Open up doors and give me chances. Open my eyes so that I see them, so that I know what to say and what to do. Little things, big things. I read a magazine article one time written by a woman who had come to Christ out of a lesbian background. 
In her workplace, she had a Christian, a guy who was a Christian, and they talked, they found out some things about, some basics about each other. They had a little bit of the discussion about what the Bible says about homosexuality, and they talked about a lot of other things, and she hated him. By her own admission, she hated him. She was cordial to him to his face and hated him inside. Some of because of what he said, but most they didn't talk about a lot of that stuff for years. He was just nice to her, and that was more aggravating. Because she knew what he thought about what she was doing. But he was still nice to her. She hated him and hated him and hated him. And it finally came to the point, two years into this relationship, she went into their boss and said, me or him. Either I stay and you send him, or I go and he stays. Which do you want? Thinking that she was the more valuable employee. That she was going to get him either transferred or fired. It, I cannot take this anymore. I hate seeing him and you know what she reports turned her not this guy's grand gospel presentation to her when she came back from that appointment she found a latte that he had purchased for her and left on her desk and she thought on what grounds do I hate this guy I'm in there arguing that he would be fired and he buys me a latte that was a little thing but a great commission Christian is thinking How can I love and serve these people around me? Sometimes that will be by preaching the gospel. Sometimes it might be purchasing lattes. But that's what you're thinking about, influencing people towards eternity, towards Christ. It'll affect where you live, what you do, where you move to, when you move. You're thinking, I exist, I live I'm about this commission. And that is an impossible change to happen in your heart. In my heart. The human heart. To have everything so radically reoriented from me and what satisfies me and what advances me to what advances this cause that's really for God and somebody else. I mean, it is enjoyable for me, but I'm already good to go. To have that kind of a change happen in you is miraculous. But it is required. We are under orders. So your prayer needs to be, God, let your kingdom come and use me in it and change me so that I can be useful. Change my perspective so that I am willing to engage. Motivate me. Send me out. Help He'll respond because he says, you will be my witness. He'll respond to that prayer. He will change you. He will change us. It's the first observation. We have been given a commission. We're on a mission. The second observation is that he's also given us a message. Jesus has given us the message to proclaim while on the mission. Because you might say, okay, I'm a witness I'm down with that, I'm going out, but what do I say? He tells us what to say to you. Christ provides a message to you and aims to fill you with it so that it runs through you, consumes you, controls you, and bubbles out to those around you. When I talk about filling, I don't mean just my knowledge, though. Filling, in a biblical sense, is a controlling. Another way you might use it in our our language. Think of somebody who's filled with rage, 
They're controlled by it. They're not just a little angry. They're filled with rage or filled with alcohol. You get altered inside in some way. It's controlling you. He aims to fill us with some truth, with a message that it would control us, it would change us, would reorient how we think, how we act, and it would come out of us. Well, what's, what's the message? Well, what has he been teaching? Last week and this week. Like in Luke 24, what did he teach them? Remember, that passage is essentially right at the same time as this passage. What was he talking about? The Christ come crucified, raised up. The one and only way to be forgiven of sin when a person repents. That's what he was talking about last week. It's the message of the cross and one, one great hope of salvation. That's the message. Well, what do you see this week? There's more. What's he doing with the apostles in verse 2 and verse 3? He's teaching them. He doesn't say what exactly he's teaching them. He's reinforcing the resurrection. He's talking about the kingdom, the importance of the spirit. He's talking about more of those things. And then in the ascension, when he leaves, he's also teaching them there. We're going to look a little more closely at that now. He doesn't just like walk around the corner and disappear. He teaches them about himself in how he leaves. Lifted up on a cloud into heaven. The word heaven is used four times there in those two verses. He's going into heaven. And while they're looking into heaven, the angels say, Why are you looking into heaven? He's going to come back from heaven just like he came. Just like he went, riding on the clouds. An allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. Some of you have been through the Daniel study, you know right off what that verse is. In Daniel 7, 14, Daniel sees a vision of one like a son of man brought into the presence of the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days gives to him dominion, authority, power, the right to be worshipped among all peoples, nations, and languages. That's Daniel, but do you hear scope there? You, son of man, you have dominion forever and ever and ever in all peoples, all nations, all languages. That's the gospel. That's the outcome of this king, his, his enthroning. He will come back in the same way that he went, riding on the clouds. Who's Daniel talking about? Jesus, obviously. And it's alluded to here to remind the apostles of that passage, to remind us of that passage. He has gone to heaven. He reigns. He has dominion over everything. He will come back to judge. All these things he's teaching them. Try to pull all that together. What is the message? Let's condense it. Last week, this week, the cross, the absolute certainty of the resurrection, the supremacy of Christ over all things, everywhere, all peoples, Raised up on the clouds, reigning over the earth. The one to whom we must give account. It's the gospel of grace by which we can be forgiven. This is the message. Turn, repent from self-focus to Christ-focus. That's the message. You must know that. You personally must understand that and be gripped by it. We talk about that all the time. And if you think about it, that's what the Bible's about. 
one quote I like where reading in a particular book, a man made kind of a, a very brief comment that said, we must preach Christ because there is no other message from God. That right there is what the Bible is about. It is the message that God has given to us. And it must grip you. It must give you life and it must flow out of you and be what you witness, what you testify. That's an important point. Because around our nation today, there are many, many sincere Christians who preach part of that message earnestly and accurately. But the problem is, as the old saying says, a half-truth presented as if it is the whole truth is a complete untruth. I'll say that again. A half-truth presented as if it is the whole truth is a complete untruth. This is critical to think about. Get this. If, if, you, if the message that you are preaching is Jesus makes life work better, so trust Jesus. Now, is it true that life works better with Jesus? Sure. He only ordains good for his people. But if that's the whole message, if that's what it's really about, life works better with Jesus, so embrace Jesus, that's a complete untruth. It leaves a person still in danger of hell. It leaves a person still liable to be in love with life working out. And if Jesus gets that for me, great. But what I really want is life to work out. Take another example. Jesus will protect you, so embrace Jesus. Is that true? Sure it's true. Jesus protects us. But you can really easily present that such that a person really wants safety. And I'll get it through Jesus if I can. That's great. What I'm really after, though, is safety. And the message of the gospel is repent from your worship of safety, your worship of a life that works out well and prosperously and orderly. Repent of that and turn to Jesus. And then life will work out well and you'll be kept safe. You see the difference there? It's a critical difference. And it goes a long way towards explaining a lot of what's wrong in our churches. Why we have anemic Christianity. Many people who claim Christ, vast, you've thought about it, vast numbers of this country claim to be Christians, claim to believe in Jesus, to trust Jesus. I would submit to you that what they've actually done is trust Jesus to get what they really want, and they're still idolaters. That might be a new way of looking at the gospel, but you have to think about it like that. We are called to love the Lord our God with all of our souls, mind, and strength and our neighbors ourselves. Love Him with everything that you have. Turn to Him. Repent of loving anything else in front of Him, above Him, before Him. It's a critical thing that you see this. I was on a missions trip one time with a friend and we were sharing the gospel with three guys on, on a sidewalk, talk with them for about 20 minutes about spiritual things, about Jesus. 20, 30 minutes into this, my friend is about to lead them in a prayer to receive Christ. But some things weren't quite right. So we asked a few more probing questions. And their answers to those questions and the next 20 and 30 minutes of conversation revealed that they had no idea what the gospel was. They had no intention of repenting. They had no not even pretending to want to come to Jesus on Jesus' terms. 
And as we debriefed after that conversation, the thing that stuck with us most, our key observation was that we could have gotten three decisions for Christ really easily. We were seconds away from it. But they would not have been decisions for Christ. And we need to be more clear and more careful about what we actually present to people and what we call them to. That we call them to repent of sin. That we call them to love the Lord with everything they have and to set Him as primary in their affections. We need to be more careful about that. Lowering the bar does no one any good because people who cross it still are not in. And they're actually in worse danger because they've been led to believe that they are in. We're going to read a lot of sermons in the book of Acts. And those guys do not lower the bar. In settings far more hostile than we're ever going to face, they preach the gospel to people and say, there it is, do with it what you will. Now, they've got different ways of going about it given different settings. They talk about different pieces in different places. But they don't present half as if it is the whole. You can present half, snippets here and there, but don't present it as if it is the whole, or you've misled somebody. We have been given a message, the gospel, that must be what controls our hearts, and it must be what we preach. It's given us a mission, mission and a message that is impossibly hard for the human heart to embrace. And so he has also given us, here's the third observation, means by which that message can be successfully proclaimed. He just said it is impossible for the human heart to embrace that. Is that really true? It is true. Just think about what's actually going on. Suppose that you have explained actually the whole of the gospel. You've made it clear who Christ is what sin is, the need to repent and turn. Suppose you made all that clear. Then what we're trying to do there, to use other Bible language, is raise the dead. Give sight to the blind. To liberate those who have been taken captive by Satan to do his will. We're, we're plundering Satan's prison cells. Paul talks about how Everything, I, everything in my life I consider rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Not that everything is rubbish, but by comparison, Christ has risen up and become the top love, the chief affection in his heart. That's impossible for us to do by ourselves. You ever notice that you can't control your affections? You can't make yourself love something. You can give yourself plenty of opportunity. You can eat chocolate ice cream, chocolate ice cream, chocolate ice cream, chocolate ice cream, and maybe you'll grow to love it, but there's no decision that you can make. I now really, really, really like chocolate ice cream. It might grow on you, but not by decision. There's a change that has to happen in there. An affection has to be altered. The dead have to receive life. The blind receive sight. The prison doors are thrown open so the captives can come out. That requires sovereign power. It's a good thing that Jesus is teaching through our mouths and that the Spirit lives in us and will drive those words into people. It's the third observation. He has given us power in the Spirit. Verse 8, beginning of it now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. All of us are baptized in the Spirit. 
But now we have power, the kind of power that changes human hearts. The whole rest of Acts is going to show that. We've talked about it some in John already. At Pentecost, we all now live in this age of the Spirit. At Pentecost, the Spirit comes and settles on his people, indwells us in unique and remarkable ways, and now goes out with us to engage the world effectively. When and how he chooses, we can't dictate that. It's not always going to be that 3,000 people are going to come to faith like happened with Peter when he preached. But when and as he chooses, spiritual power will be paired with the words that you're speaking, the actions that you're doing, and it will change people. Even little things like buying lattes, things like explaining the whole gospel, We must trust that. Trust that his power wants to work through you. Don't lower the bar to let people in. It doesn't require power for that. Preach the full gospel and trust that he in power will bring people to it. Will change them. The book of Acts is all about God working through his people. We have power. We have a message. We have a mission. We've been assigned. It's his command. And it's also our privilege. Join with him as he spreads his kingdom through you. Let me pray. Lord, would you make us great commission Christians? Would you affect a significant change in our hearts that reorders how we think about our lives, how we think about your call on them? Would you, in power, move through us to bring some glorious changes to those around us, to open their eyes to help them to understand a little more and a little more and a little more and even to gather them in to the kingdom to believe, to trust. Would you do that, Lord? Would you grip us with this message and use it to change the world? It's my hope and my prayer, Lord. In Christ's name I pray it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.